you have a Bible with you, open up to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, we'll be continuing in our verse-by-verse study through this incredible gospel, the gospel of John. This morning, we'll just be looking at one verse. It's John chapter 7 and verse 39. The title for the message is, The Promise of the Holy Spirit. So in order to frame this one verse, we'll read it in light of our other two verses that we spent some time in last week, and then we didn't quite finish that last point, which I've taken and expanded in this sermon, the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so let's look at John chapter 7, and we'll look at verses 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, As Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Father, we pray that you would allow us to understand this text of Scripture and the promise of the Holy Spirit that Christ talks about and that is elaborated on here in verse 39. I pray, God, that this morning that those who are thirsty would come, that we would all drink of the one well of the Lord Jesus Christ and experience this living water flowing in us and through us to reach a lost and dying world. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, a promise is a commitment to either do or not do something for someone else. A promise is a way of communicating commitment and of giving your word. A promise is a way to demonstrate loyalty and love. And God's word is full of his faithful promises to his people. And God doesn't lie. So that means that every promise that he has ever made will come true by the word of his power. God's promises are backed by his impeccable character and his unrivaled power. God's promises produce comfort and hope. God's promises are faithful and true. The well-known missionary William Carey said, the future is as bright as the promises of God. Well-known evangelist D.L. Moody said, God never made a promise that was too good to be true. Hymn writer Isaac Watts adds, I believe the promises of God enough to venture an eternity on them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, God does not give us everything we want, but he does fulfill his promises, leading us along the best and straightest paths to himself. Corey Tenboom said, gather the riches of God's promises. Nobody can take away from you those texts from the Bible, which you have learned by heart. She also said, let God's promises shine on your problems. The late R.C. Sproul said, faith involves trusting in the future promises of God and waiting for their fulfillment. When I think about the promises of God, and I think about the promises God has made in Scripture, I am overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed of the goodness of God, of all the promises we read, like the Lord will fight for you, you need to only be still. I think about God's promise, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I love the promise of Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
How about Psalm 27? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I think about the promise that he gives strength to the weary and that he increases the power of the weak. I think about his promise when he says, so do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I think about the fact that though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will never be shaken nor my covenant of peace be removed. I love the promise of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your Heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. I love the promise that Christ gives. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Think about the promise that Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Or how about Romans 8, 28? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. How about James 1, 5? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously without reproach, and it will be given unto him. How about James 4, 7? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Revelation 22, 7, Jesus promised, and behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Aren't you grateful this morning for the promises of God? Aren't you happy today that we have a God who makes promises, who never breaks them? Aren't you thankful today for the promises we see in Scripture? And so that means if you're here today and you're worried or you're afraid, or you're hurting, I pray that you can find great hope today and great joy in the promises of our great God. There's a special promise that Jesus made here at the Feast of Booths, as we've been studying in John chapter 7, and it's this promise that, that the one who thirsts, and the one who comes, and the one who drinks, the one who believes that out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And Jesus says that if you're thirsty today, to come to the living water. And as you drink deeply from the fountain of life, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. You will be satisfied. You will be overflowing. You will be a ministry to others. And then notice how in verse 39 he says, or the writer, rather, the Apostle John, gives some commentary on Jesus' words of verse 37, 38, and 39 we read, Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus is saying that this whole thing about living water flowing in you and out of you to others is all about the Holy Spirit. In other words, without the Holy Spirit, there's no coming, there's no drinking, and there's no living water. Without the Holy Spirit, that we do not have eternal life. The Holy Spirit is intricately involved in the entire process of salvation. The Holy Spirit is also providing the power, propelling the living water through you to others. The Holy Spirit has been at work throughout redemptive history, but there's something special about the future coming and indwelling of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is talking about here once he's been glorified. The Holy Spirit 
is one of God's greatest promises. What I want to do this morning is give you an overview of four periods of time as we seek to learn about the Holy Spirit and His work so that you can be more confident of the Spirit's work in your life. We'll look at first the presence of the Holy Spirit throughout the Old Testament. Second, we'll look at the teaching on the Holy Spirit by the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, we'll look at the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and throughout the book of Acts. And then fourth, we'll look at the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a New Testament believer. So here we go. Are you ready? Buckle up. We're studying the Holy Spirit. All right. Number one, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. That word Holy Spirit in the Hebrew is the word ruach. It appears 378 times in the Old Testament, but 79 of them refer to the Holy Spirit. That word can be translated as spirit, wind, or breath. And here's the first thing I want you to, to see here is this, the Holy Spirit's involvement in creation. We could argue that the Holy Spirit appears in the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the word for God there is the word Elohim, which gives a sense of plurality. So we know that there's three in one. But the second verse in the Bible says this, the earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We could argue that verse 2 in the Bible is a direct reference to the Holy Spirit. We could even argue that the Holy Spirit shows up in the Bible before the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting to think about, but we know that the Holy Spirit is certainly involved in creation. Not only that, down in verse 26 of the first chapter of the Bible, then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. So you see there the plural pronouns where we understand God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and it was partly the work of the Holy Spirit to let us make man in our image. That's part of the work of the Holy Spirit. Not only did he help create the heavens and the earth, it was the Holy Spirit who helped give you the imago Dei, the idea that you're created in the image of God with a living soul and with the opportunity to have eternal life from time to time as we've had pets in our home. The inevitable question comes up, well, are these pets going to live forever? Are these pets going to be in heaven? To which I just crush kids' spirits and say, no, they're not going to be. And you know why? Because they're not created in the image of God. Because there's a difference between an animal and a human being. Listen up, Californians. There's something different about your dog and about your soul. The image of God is written on your soul, and that's part of the work of the Holy Spirit, that you have an opportunity to imitate the characteristics, at least the communicable attributes of God. Now, not only was the Holy Spirit involved in creation, but we also see the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. The Holy Spirit is omnipresent. You're familiar with Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning or dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light, be, uh, uh, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. 
And so what we see from that psalm, Psalm 139, is you can't get out of the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been with mankind from day one. The Holy Spirit is with you on your best day. And the Holy Spirit is with you on your worst day. And the Holy Spirit is there to lead you and to guide you into the truth of God's words. Now let's look next at the fact that the Holy Spirit is the source of divine wisdom, power, and knowledge. All the attributes of God belong to each person of the Trinity, or else that person of the Trinity would not be God. And so we understand in Isaiah chapter 11 that he's teaching us that in this particular passage that just as the Holy Spirit came upon David when he was anointed as king, so will he rest on David's descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what he writes, Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that would be David, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. A thought about a future Davidic king and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so we learn from this passage in Isaiah that the Holy Spirit is full of wisdom and he's full of understanding and he's full of counsel and he's full of might and he's full of knowledge. And that just as the Holy Spirit rested on David and on the Lord Jesus Christ, may the same Holy Spirit rest on you this day. Now, one more thing I want to say about the Holy Spirit. I know it's a quick overview, just trying to give you a big picture. Holy Spirit's present in the Old Testament, right? So your next blank is this. The Holy Spirit came upon certain individuals for a special work. This may be the point you're kind of looking for to understand the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. So turn to the book of Numbers, if you will. So we see in the pages of the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit appears frequently. It was the Holy Spirit who anointed the prophets and anointed the priest and anointed the king. It was the Holy Spirit who changed the hearts of unbelievers in the Old Testament and made them the people of God. And as it is today, it was then, as it was then, there was no regeneration, no salvation, no transformation without the work of the Holy Spirit. But the anointing of the Holy Spirit for power, for special acts of service, was limited to a few individuals such as Moses, Samson, and Elijah. Take Moses, for example, during Israel's wilderness wanderings, God told Moses to bring 70 elders to the tabernacle where God would take from the Spirit that was upon Moses and distribute him to others that they might help Moses to bear the burden of the ministry. Numbers chapter 11, verse 24. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord and gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit, that would be the Holy Spirit, that was on him, that would be on Moses, and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. We get this idea that the Holy Spirit shows up for a special work, through a special ministry, for a special time, but there's not this continuation in the Old Testament like we'll see once the indwelling begins in the New Testament. Look at verse 26 there in Numbers 11. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man 
ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp, and Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. So we see the idea here, jo jo Joshua uh, is a little bit restraining the spread, if you will, of the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of others. But Moses offers up a cry in verse 29, or we could say a prayer, that, that all of the Lord's people would be prophets and that all the Lord's people would possess the Spirit of God. And at this time, we understand that this is a, a really a prayer and also a prophecy of Joel chapter 2, where we learn more about that fulfillment in the reality of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So what was said as a, a prayer of Moses in Numbers 11 became a prophecy of Joel in chapter 2, becomes a reality in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit does come upon every single person. They're not special people in the New Testament understanding of salvation. There is the Holy Spirit that's available for all. But in the Old Testament, the Spirit seemed to work in a special way. As you read things even about the Shekinah glory of God on Moses, and they would cover his face with a veil. He didn't do that to everybody. There were special times, special seasons. But in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, we understand that it's prophesied that every believer will be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Consider this famous prophecy of Ezekiel 36, 26 about the new covenant when he says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. That would be the key there. Instead of it, the Holy Spirit just being with you, generally in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is within you in the New Testament as it's told to us here. I will put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and calls you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So there's a special nature to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for every New Testament believer. I think there's a special morality even. If you think about in the Old Testament, various patriarchs that fell, just as we do, but in various ways, but they were still upheld as good leaders in the nation of Israel. You don't see that happening today, or you see in the New Testament, rather, the idea of disqualification for someone who falls in a certain way, and that's because I think in the Old Testament, they didn't have the same power to fight against sin that you might have as a New Testament believer because you have the Holy Spirit living within you. Now, I'm not giving any Old Testament person an excuse. I'm just saying there's a difference between how the Holy Spirit was at work in the Old Testament, and there's a difference in how the Holy Spirit is at work in the New Testament. And that ought to encourage us this morning. That ought to encourage us that we're actually getting more and more and more clarity and understanding as New Covenant believers. It also ought to encourage us that the Holy Spirit didn't just show up at Pentecost. We serve the same God who's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. The, the God that we serve is unchanging. He is constant. He is filled with wisdom and love and with power. Well, now that we've seen the presence of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, let's take a look at the teaching on the Holy Spirit by the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you think of a better teacher to teach us about the Holy Spirit? Maybe you've had a favorite series or seminar you've listened to by some well-known preacher of the New Testament, but Lord knows that there have been a bunch of teachers, especially in the 20th and 21st centuries, who've made a mess when it comes to teaching on the Holy Spirit. Just this week, I listened to a well-known pastor preach about his view of the continuation of the miraculous gifts 
in the New Testament, and he went on to explain what he meant by that. He was very gracious and kind, but he also said that, let me give you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. And he said in this message that when he was a young man preaching, after a certain sermon, a man that he had never met walked up to him and blew on his face. And he said, ever since that day, my preaching and my ministry has been enhanced and empowered in ways that couldn't be explained before that. Now, that's not good teaching on the Holy Spirit. This same individual talked about how he had another vision where he saw pigtails. And when he saw pigtails, he related this to another person who had another connection with pigtails, and somehow this person got saved because of the vision of the pigtails. I'm telling you, I don't think that that's good teaching on the Holy Spirit. All right, good teaching on the Holy Spirit starts with the Lord Jesus Christ. It starts with the words of Jesus. He's the best teacher with the most authority, with the most clarity of anybody you could ever listen to on the Holy Spirit. And so we see here, your next blank says, the Holy Spirit is spoken of many times by Jesus. The Apostle John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, I think is giving a footnote here in verse 39 about what this living water is flowing out of you. And he's saying that Jesus is talking about the Spirit. John is saying that this hasn't fully happened yet until the pouring out of the Spirit, which will happen at Pentecost. He's not saying that the Holy Spirit is not active until Pentecost. He's simply saying that you will see this fulfilled in a whole new way once the Spirit is indwelling the life of a believer. And so Jesus speaks about the Holy Spirit in this gospel and throughout his ministry, starting maybe even with Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again by cleansing and by repentance and by the divine work of the Holy Spirit awakening you. You were dead, but you're made alive. This regenerating power is a work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus goes on to say that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. He's just simply saying here that the Holy Spirit is very active in regeneration We must be cleansed and we must be converted by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And for you to be spiritually alive, you must be born again. And that is a work of the Holy Spirit. And you may not be able to see the Holy Spirit like you see Jesus, but we see the effect of the Holy Spirit. Like Jesus is talking about, you see the wind. You may not see the wind, but you see the effect of the wind in a person's life. And it's the same way with the Holy Spirit. The effect of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life means that you are enlightened to God's Word to be able to understand it in a way you could not before. Maybe if you were regenerated, maybe even more recently as a believer, you were like, man, I used to never understand the Bible. I'd read the Bible and I'd try to understand and I thought I knew, but it just never made sense to me. Then I got born again. And when God saved me by His grace, the words are leaping off the page. That's the Holy Spirit working in you and the priesthood of every believer to be able to understand the scripture that's a work of the holy spirit and his enlightenment another effect of the holy spirit would be a believer's life is that you're empowered and able to resist temptation 
When you're walking in the Spirit and not walking in the flesh, you have added power to overcome, more than willpower. We're talking about Holy Spirit power. Maybe you used to be addicted to pornography. Maybe you used to be addicted to alcohol. Maybe you used to be addicted to weed. Maybe you were, uh, just couldn't resist that sarcastic comment or that fit of rage or that selfish action. But as you walk in the power of the Spirit, you have power over those things. You're no longer a slave to that because you're a slave to Christ. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Another effect of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life means that you're energized to live for Christ and to find your joy in total surrender to Him. You know what I'm tired of? I'm tired of tired Christians. I'm tired of people telling me, I'm just so tired. Just so tired of serving in my church. Just so tired, pastor, of disciplining my kids. I'm just so tired of having to be here every Sunday or going to small group or giving extra of my time. You know what's wrong with that person? They're not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe with all my heart that when you're energized by the Holy Spirit, now listen, do we get tired? Yes, we get tired. Lisa and I get tired. We get tired. We have tons of people in our home, and we do tons of ministry, and we get tired. But you know what we do when we get tired? We keep praying. We keep reading. We keep serving. We keep shepherding our kids, and God keeps giving strength. He keeps giving joy. He keeps giving, let's lean into this mess. Let's lean into our deficiencies and our strength, and let's tap into some Holy Spirit power where we can do what He's called us to do at His pace and at His way, serving in His church. We need people who are operating not in their own strength, but in God's strength. So if you see something around this church and you're like, well, I'm just so tired of serving in the nursery, just so tired of being on youth staff and college group, and I'm so tired of women's Bible study, so tired. Something's wrong. I'm telling you, you need to operate in the power of the Spirit. Ask God to give you more of His Spirit, more joy to energize you to do the work that He's called you to do in His strength and for His glory. Now, let's continue to listen, because I can tell you want me to move on to the next part here, but let's continue to listen to what Jesus is teaching us here about the Holy Spirit. Look at John 14, 6, and let's, let's move through a little bit of what Jesus is teaching us about the Spirit. We see him saying in John 14, 6, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you. The Lord Jesus knows that you can't do it on your own. The Lord Jesus wants you to have a helper the Holy Spirit, who will be with you forever. I mean, think about it. Jesus was only on this earth 33 years. His ministry only lasted a little over three years. But the ministry of the Holy Spirit will always be with us. He'll always be working with us. He'll always be giving us power. He's never going to ascend to the Father and be gone. And consider what Jesus says in John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, it's important to, to understand it's not like ever that the, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit are pitted against each other. Their ministries do overlap. But what we're seeing here is the Trinity at work. Jesus is the master teacher. The Holy Spirit helps you remember Christ's teaching and to understand Christ's teaching and to apply Christ's teaching. Now, with that being said, let's think about some more things that Jesus is saying here. I think there is a unique role that the Holy Spirit plays, and that is this. Your next blank says the Holy Spirit is to bear witness to 
and glorify the Son. So first, the Holy Spirit bears witness to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And Jesus says this in John 15, 26, but when the Helper comes, by the way, when we talk about that word helper, a lot of times in premarital counseling, I'll look at the, the fiancé, the wife-to-be, and I'll say, guess what God thinks of you? God's first reference to you in the Bible is in Genesis 2.18 when he says that Adam needs a helper. And Lord knows this man needs some help. And that's you. You are called to be a helper. And sometimes a lady will look at me and be like, well, I can just do more than help. I am a woman. I've got my own gifts. I've got my own abilities. And I'm like, yes, you do, girl. But you're called to be a helper. You are called to help this man. And don't be discouraged by that word helper because guess who else is the helper? God Almighty is the helper who helps his people. The Holy Spirit is a helper who helps his church. So helper is a word that is magnified. It is a supreme word. It is a, a function of beauty to be able to come alongside and help somebody. And so Jesus says, again, John 15, 26, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So one of the Holy Spirit's roles is to bear witness about Christ. The Holy Spirit cannot tell a lie. So what he says about Christ is true. And what he says about Christ is that Christ is the Christ. He is the Messiah. In addition to bearing witness to Christ, the Holy Spirit also glorifies the Son. John 16, 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Son never glorifies himself. He glorifies the Father. And the Father in return glorifies the Son. But the Holy Spirit also glorifies the Son. That's one of his unique roles is to lift up the Son, to make the Son more visible, more uh, understandable through the Word of God as he enlightens our hearts and our minds. The Holy Spirit is constantly glorifying the Son. And so one of the ways the Holy Spirit glorifies the Son is to take all that Jesus has ever taught and he declares it to you. He enlightens you to the truth that Jesus taught. He reminds you of the teachings of Christ. He gives you understanding to know and the power to live it out. This is when you're in the midst of an evangelism opportunity and you're witnessing to somebody and all of a sudden you don't have anything to say and the Holy Spirit brings to mind a verse. This is the opportunity of uh, you're fighting against sin and temptation, and all of a sudden there's a verse that comes to mind that you've been meditating on that comes to your mind in that moment. This is the Holy Spirit. He's glorifying the Son by magnifying the gospel in your life, and he's reminding you and teaching you that Jesus is enough, that the gospel is enough, that Christ is enough. Jesus also teaches us this. Your next blank says the Holy Spirit will come after Jesus has gone to be with the Father. Now, this means that he comes in all of his fullness, like in John 14, 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now, you've ever read that before, maybe even as a kid, and you're like, what? What did he say? Greater works than these he will do. Like, how in the world can we do greater works than Jesus? Like Jesus healed the sick, like Jesus cleansed the leper, he caused the blind to see and the deaf to hear, Jesus raised people from the dead. And so in John 14, 12, when Jesus says, look, when the Holy Spirit gets here, 
And when he fills you, you're going to do even greater things than these. What in the world is he talking about? Well, the way I understand it, I believe that Jesus meant greater, he, he didn't mean greater physical miracles, but he meant greater in the sense of a broader spiritual extent that Christians will receive power to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, that Christians will receive power in the Spirit to magnify the Son, and so through the church, the gospel will spread throughout the world because of the Helper dwelling in us. We need the Holy Spirit to accomplish missions, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and in Colombia, and in Uganda, and in the ends of the earth. This is what God's called us to. It's, it's not that we're doing greater, more powerful miracles, because we're not. It's that his gospel spreads in a greater collective way out of, I mean, Jesus, think about it. Jesus ministered in Israel and in the Decapolis, a few Greek cities in that area. Since the Holy Spirit's come, the gospel has exploded to the four corners of the earth. And the Bible tells us in Revelation that every tribe and every tongue and every nation will be represented in heaven. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So I believe that's what he's talking about. Or how about what Jesus says in John 16, 7? Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, do you hear what Jesus is saying? I've got to go back to the Father in order to send the Holy Spirit. Now, if I had been there at that time, I think I probably would have said something like Peter tends to say when he sticks his foot in the mouth, in his mouth, and I probably would have said something like, well, yeah, Jesus, but I'd rather have you. I'd rather just have you right here. I mean, you're doing a great job. Stay here, and I'll just hold on to your coattails, and you keep doing what it is you're doing, and I will be your disciple. That's how I would probably think of it. But Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. I've got to go to the Father. Because when I go to the Father, then I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And that's actually to your advantage. It's to your advantage that I not stay here so that you can learn to walk by faith. So that you can learn to live a Spirit-filled life. So that you're not always just looking to my physical person to do the work, but that you're doing the work in the power of the Spirit. And so he's telling us, I got to go. So that as I pray for you and send you the Holy Spirit, he will be your paraclete. He will be your helper, your companion. So I'm excited to think about the fact that it's with this teaching of Christ that we see greater clarity and that we can live life with greater expectancy and greater anticipation of the life-changing power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we've seen the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. We've learned a little bit more from Jesus and his wonderful teaching of the Holy Spirit. Let's now examine, number three, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost quick overview. Next blank. The Holy Spirit is given fully after Jesus has ascended into heaven. We know this happened 50 days after the resurrection. That's why it's called Pentecost. That, that uh, feast was 50 days after Passover. Also, we understand that it was 40 days after the ascension of Christ. So, at that time is where we start to read about what happens in Acts chapter 2, right? And Jesus prepares his disciples again in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. While he was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise, that's the Holy Spirit, 
of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then we read this in Acts 2. Here we go. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This true and awesome event gloriously did shake up the church. This miraculous occurrence helped bring authenticity both to Christ's words and to the message of the gospel. And from Pentecost on, evangelism has continued to grow and expand throughout the globe. And I believe that the gift of tongues was a genuine but temporary gift of speaking in a real language that one had never studied before in order to tell others about the mighty works of God. Now, we see in Acts, as this begins at Pentecost, it continues throughout the book of Acts. There are many, your next blank says, miracles produced by the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. Starts at Pentecost in a major way, and then it continues throughout the book of Acts. We see the gift of speaking in tongues in Acts 2, 10, and 19. We see many signs and wonders are done by the apostles in Jerusalem. We see how Peter heals a lame man at the temple gate. Peter's shadow cures many in the streets. Prison doors open on their own before the apostles. Stephen works great signs and wonders. Philip heals a crippled and possessed man in Samaria. Ananias cures Saul of his blindness. Peter heals a paralytic. Peter raises Tabitha from the dead. Peter is liberated from prison by an angel. Paul cures the lame man from Lystra. Paul was stoned and left for dead, but he got up and went back in. Paul cast out a demon of a girl possessed with a divining spirit. Chains fell off of Paul and Silas while they were in prison. Paul raises the young man Eutychus up from the dead. Paul shakes off a viper from his arm and heals the sick of all who were brought to him on the isle of Malta. I love the book of Acts. You're getting tired in Bible study? Study Acts. It's full of God's power, and it's amazing, and it's all true. No no one here is denying any of that. But miracles do not in and of themselves produce saving faith. Miracles and the power of the Spirit in these miraculous ways through the apostles and their close associates was to point to the gospel to point to Christ. Remember, the Holy Spirit's job is to glorify Christ. And that's why sometimes in some charismatic circles, it's all about the gifts, man. Are you speaking in tongues? Have you had the second baptism? Right? Everybody gets excited. Well, where's the gospel in that? I mean, it just starts to get off, you know. I'm not against miracles. I believe God could do a miracle any moment, any day. He could heal the sick. He He could do whatever he wants. I'm just saying that as we observe life in the Spirit as we know it, we are not seeing to the same degree the miracles that God did as the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit did in Acts. We're just not. And that's because I believe that, your next blank says, the sign gifts do cease when the perfect comes. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. 
As for knowledge, it will pass away, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. If we had time to dig down on this chapter, we would just explain, look, these gifts are just still part of the maturing of the church. These gifts are part of the continuation of the Spirit's work in power miraculously until the perfect comes. The word perfect here in this text is the word teleos, which means perfect. It means complete. It means mature. And I believe this to be a reference to the Scripture. I believe that the Scripture is perfect and sufficient for all we need for life and godliness. I believe that when John the Apostle penned the last part of the Bible in the Isle of Patmos about Revelation in 95 AD, that that closed the canon and thus closed many of these miraculous works of God, the Holy Spirit, as permanent gifts. I believe these gifts were not permanent. They ceased. Some of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the spiritual gifts as we call them in 1 Corinthians 12 and, and in Romans 12 and Ephesians 4.11, 1 Peter 4.11, they all extend. They, they, many of them extend. Many of them stop. You say, well, which one stopped? Well, here's an example here in the 1 Corinthians passage, again, the idea of prophecies, tongues, and knowledge. At some point, they stop. I believe that to be, again, when the canon was completed. But we understand that that's not everybody's view, and that's okay. The idea is we want to just make sure that whatever our view is, it's magnifying Christ and the gospel and operating out of parameters that are clearly given in passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 14. All I'm saying is you just got to weigh what you're learning and what you're seeing today against the Bible and the actions of the New Testament church because most of the time it's not even near close, not even close. It's outlandish versus something that's verifiable in the Word of God. Let me move on to our last point here, and let's just talk for a moment about the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a New Testament believer. Because here's what we're saying. All that we see in Acts, we believe. But Acts is also a narrative describing what happened, not a manual prescribing the longevity of the New Testament church. The epistles which follow Acts lay the ground for how we are to understand the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives today. And so today the Holy Spirit, I would say, is alive and well. Today the same Holy Spirit comes and He dwells in every convert, in every believer at the moment of salvation. This same Holy Spirit has been given in full, as this verse hints at, John 7, 39, because Christ has now been glorified. He's been ascended. He has ascended back to the Father, and now the Holy Spirit is fully at work. And let's talk about how the Holy Spirit is at work. Your next blank, the Holy Spirit is at work in your salvation. He's at work in your salvation, and we've already talked about that a little bit. The, the doctrine of regeneration is a work of the Holy Spirit. We could also add here baptism, being baptized into the Holy Spirit, I believe is a spiritual metaphor of becoming born again, and it happens at your salvation. It's not that you're saved once, and then later in life, you're then rebaptized into the Holy Spirit. And while there's a couple of thoughts about that in the narrative of Acts, as we get into the epistles, you don't even see that. Instead, what you see is, is when you get saved, that's when you are born again, and that's when you're baptized and have the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit in you at that time. We could also think about, in our regeneration, the idea of sealing, sealing, that the Holy Spirit is a gift, a promise of God to seal you for the day of redemption. And that Ephesians passage talks about like how you're sealed forever, like you can't lose your salvation because the Spirit of God perseveres in you until Christ comes back. 
Now, the Holy Spirit is not only at work in your salvation, but He's also at work in your sanctification. And when you think about how the Holy Spirit is at work in your sanctification, that's your last blank, by the way, when you think about that, think about indwelling. Remember, the Holy Spirit is no longer with you. He's within you. He's no longer just showing up for a special work for certain people. He's showing up for everybody all day, every day, when you're walking in the Spirit instead of walking in the flesh. So the Spirit of God is at work in your sanctification because He's indwelling you. We could also say He's filling you. He's filling you, Ephesians 5, 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So even though we have all of the Spirit when you get saved, there is still the idea of a continual dependence or a constant filling of the Spirit, since that verb is, when it says be filled with the Spirit, it's a command, something that God calls us to do. It's in the passive voice, which means you can't do it. God has to fill you with His Spirit. It's in the present tense, which means it's an ongoing activity that never stops as long as you're alive. And it's also in the second person plural, which means it's not just for you as an individual, but it's also collectively in the church that God's filling us. We want to be a Spirit-filled church that every moment of every day we're experiencing the work of the Holy Spirit in us and through us to accomplish the work that He's called us to do. So being filled with the Spirit is not some crazy, charismatic promise. It's something that's for every believer. And then you'll see the fruit of the Spirit. When you think about sanctification, again, think about indwelling, think about filling, think about fruit, the idea of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control is a work of the Holy Spirit. This is a work of the Holy Spirit as you're obeying God's Word, as you're walking in the truth, as you're dependent on the Holy Spirit to produce fruit in you. And when we think about word pictures of the Holy Spirit in the Bible, they include dove, fire, oil, a pledge, a seal, water, and wind. And all of this is to remind us of the ministries of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit adopts. He baptizes. He bears witness. He calls to ministry. He convicts. He empowers. He fills. He guarantees. He guards. He illuminates. He indwells. He intercedes. He produces fruit. He regenerates. He reminds. He restrains. He resurrects. He reveals truth. He sanctifies. He seals. He selects overseers. He sends. He sharpens our spiritual character. He strengthens. He teaches. All of this is the work of the Holy Spirit. So how can we possibly accomplish a, you know, a full sermon today on what we're talking about? I'm just giving you a little bite-sized piece of what Christ is talking about when you're filled fully after the resurrection, after the ascension with the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to say one last thing. Last week's sermon, I talked a little bit about being dehydrated and about being thirsty. And when you're thirsty, you got to drink more water, but not too much because there is an extreme condition if you drink too much water that can cause the sodium level in your body to drop too low, and that condition is called hyponatremia. It's very serious and can even be fatal. You may have heard it called as water intoxication. The point is this. You can have too much water. But you can never have too much of the water of the Spirit. You can never have too much indwelling, too much filling, or too much fruit. You can never have too much of Jesus. You can never be dangerously overflowing and drowning in the grace of God. You can never be too excited to worship, too busy when you're about the Lord's work. 
Our whole life belongs to him. All of our time, all of our resources, all of our gifts are given from God and to be used for God. And when we think about even verse 38, now that we see how it's connected in verse 39, when Jesus says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I want you to think about this. Every Christian is to be a fountain of blessings. Every Christian is to be an artesian well. Every Christian, whether by word or by deed or by precept or by example, whether directly or indirectly with your life or with your death, every Christian is leaving their mark on another person. Some do good long after they are dead with their writings, like Augustine, Luther, and Calvin, like Baxter, Bunyan, and McShane, like Edwards, Spurgeon, and Ryle. You may not know it, but you will find it at last to be true. Christ's saying shall be fulfilled. Out of you will flow rivers of living water. I appreciate what A.W. Tozer said on this. Quote, the spirit-filled life is not a special deluxe edition of Christianity. It is part and parcel of the total plan of God for his people. Have you received the promise of the Holy Spirit? As you look at some of those take-home questions, have you received the Holy Spirit? If you're born again, you have received the Holy Spirit. You have been regenerated. You have repented. That's all a work of the Spirit through the gospel in your heart and in your life as a result of the election sovereign grace of God. Have you received the Holy Spirit? Number two, have you surrendered to the Holy Spirit's work in your life? Yes, the Holy Spirit is still alive and well. Yes, he's working. Yes, he's empowering. Are you surrendering to that work, his work in you? Or are you trying to do it on your own? Third, do you have enough of the Holy Spirit or do you want more? It's the idea of you have enough if you're saved, but we're still being filled every day. So the idea here is, yes, I have enough, but yes, I still want more. Yes, I have Jesus, but I want more of Jesus. Yes, I know God's word. I want to know God's word more. Yes, I have the spirit living in me, but I want more and more and more to be a fountain of living water flowing in me and through me to reach my husband, to reach my wife, to reach my kids, to reach my neighborhood, to reach the community and the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus made a promise in this passage, and you can take it to the bank. Out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to just spend some time today studying this passage and some of the comprehensive thoughts about the Holy Spirit throughout the entire Bible. And I pray, God, that this may be an introduction for some. It may be simple for others. But would you just give us all a, a refreshed hunger and desire to understand the role of the Holy Spirit, not to shy away, never to grieve, but rather that we would lean into your word, that we would lean into this understanding of the Holy Spirit moving in us and through us to do great things for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would not be a frozen church. I pray that we would not be mechanical. I pray that we would not do what we can only do in our own strength. God, rather, I pray that you would take text of Scripture like this and breathe in the Placerita Bible Church and better understanding of how we can tap into and be fully transformed to operate out of the power of the Spirit as we serve 
And as we give, and as we reach out, that we would be a Spirit-filled church. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.